You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. We've sound-bitten democracy. We think democracy is what we do. We think democracy means that the majority should rule without understanding what the limitations of majority rule are. Law professor Lonnie Guineer. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Jewel Thompson. In 1993, no one had heard of the term woke yet. It hadn't been invented. But that year, a law professor was nominated to a high position in the U.S. government, and her nomination was done in by what we would now know as anti-woke sentiment. Her name was Lonnie Guineer. President Bill Clinton nominated her to be Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. That's, of course, when the closer scrutiny of her past writings began. And, she says... It's when the misrepresentations of those writings began. Guineer was a strong advocate for voting rights and a strong believer that every minority voice should be heard in a democracy. Ultimately, though, her voice was drowned out by her critics' voices, and President Clinton withdrew her nomination. I met her the following year when she was on a book tour. So here now from 1994, Lonnie Guineer. You didn't get a fair deal. The sound bites killed you. I was defined by my political opponents. I don't object to trying to speak out in more um, accessible ways to talk in um, a, a manner that lay people who are not lawyers can understand. I think the difference between speaking in simple terms and being sound bitten is that I had sentences, words, phrases taken completely out of context and then used against me falsely, as opposed to trying in a few short sentences to summarize my ideas. But it was also an injustice compounded upon an injustice when you consider, as you point out, or as Stephen Carter points out, I guess, in the foreword, Nobody who was reporting on this actually read what you'd written to begin with. Which is why I published the book. (laughs) Did it occur to you, as it may occur to the reader... You should have published this a year and a half ago. None of this would have happened. Well, I never expected to be the object of a media event. My writings were not controversial in the academy. I had circulated them widely. I had sent them to conservative scholars, to liberal scholars, and had taken into account some of their legitimate criticisms. I'm not saying people have to agree with me. But there was certainly no um, notice. I was never um, expecting that what I was saying would be just dismissed, ridiculed. There is a distinction to be made, and I seem to recall that this came up during the controversy surrounding your nomination. There is a distinction to be made, isn't there, between proposing an idea in an academic context in which the whole idea is to generate some debate and discussion and putting it into a political context where you're saying, this is what I believe and I think this is what the country should do. Academics participate in a scholarly conversation in which you write something and then you expect someone else to respond and then you respond to what they are saying and it's an ongoing debate. I think that the public is also entitled to participate in an ongoing debate. And part of the problem with what happened to me is that the media tends to reduce debate 
to what um, Sheldon Hackney calls drive-by shooting or drive-by journalism so that you don't have genuine conversation. You don't have people saying something and someone else responding, perhaps critically, but in a constructive manner. Instead, you have people saying, you're, right, you're wrong, I'm right. You're down, I'm up. You lost, I won. And in that sense, you eliminate the possibility of nuance. You eliminate the possibility of um, consensus, genuine consensus. And instead, all you hear are the loudest voices. It is a zero-sum discussion, as as it were. As opposed to a positive-sum experience, which is what I'm talking about in the context of democracy, that everyone should have an opportunity to vote and to have a voice, and that the winners should not win everything and the losers shouldn't lose everything, that we can all win something. It did occur to me, as it must have occurred to you on many an occasion, if you took your writings, took your name off, and put the Heritage Foundation name on, or some other such think tank, people would look at that and say, yes, there's some very thoughtful ideas in here. We should consider some of these. But because your name is on there and now, and especially for people who didn't read them, boy, these are radical ideas. We can't do that. Well, yes, that did occur to me because several of the columnists who criticized me (laughs) have expressed exactly the same view, but in another context. They are prepared to worry about the representation of minorities as long as we're talking about well-to-do landlords in New York City or the minority in South Africa. But when you start talking about the minority in the United States, which happens to be a racial minority, then people assume that you're talking about special preferences. They assume you're talking about quotas even when you're not. I'm talking about the racial minority, but I'm talking about solutions that would empower any politically cohesive minority without regard to race. It struck me that somebody who is far-sighted enough, even if he is of a a heterosexual of European-American origin, should embrace fully what you're saying because in half a century or so's time, guess who's going to be the minority in this country? The white European-American. That's right. I think that um, if you're aware of the demographic changes, that no one can be assured of being a member of a permanent majority in this country. And therefore, everyone should be prepared to talk about taking turns, to talk about democracy in a way that everyone's voice counts. At a time then when we seem to be able, at a, like we never have been able to before, to open up a dialogue with, with gays and lesbians, with African Americans, with Hispanics, with Asian Americans. Why do we also seem to be so divisive at the moment? Well, I think part of the problem is the legacy of um, two administrations that used race as a political cue and appealed to the resentments of many working-class whites who were legitimately worried about losing their jobs and told them that the reason they were losing their jobs is not that the economy was downsizing, it's not that um, technology was replacing them, but it was because of affirmative action. It was because of blacks. And so they redirected the resentment toward racial minorities. That's very polarizing. And some of that was deliberate. I have um, a memo from William Bradford Reynolds, who was head of the Civil Rights Division under Ronald Reagan, in which he said that the strategy of that administration was to polarize. We do not build consensus, he said. We must confront, or we do not seek consensus. We must confront. So in that sense, if you push people into their respective corners, you shouldn't be surprised when they stay there. And that's why I think we're desperate as a country for leadership as 
to how we can have a conversation, how we can move out of our respective corners into the middle ground. There is a very interesting study um, among parents in Boston that I was told about by the president of a small foundation in Philadelphia where parents, white, black, Latino, Asian, were asked, what do you want for your kids? And the first thing that they said is they wanted their kids to learn how to swim. And then they said they wanted their kids to graduate from high school and to get a good education. And then they wanted their kids to do better than they. In particular, they wanted their kids to learn skills that they didn't have, such as getting along with people who are different than they are. So I I don't think people want to stay in their corners, but they don't know how to get out. But you also have a delicate task when you've got an economy that's in the shape ours is. In bad times, people do tend to, to... kind of build fences around themselves, guard jealously what they've got so that somebody else doesn't come along and take it. And especially if that somebody else is somebody who looks different or is oriented in a different way sexually than they are or whose gender is different or somehow threatens them, that's a very difficult task to try to accommodate those people and say, come on, let's work together and and be friends. Well, that may be a natural instinct. But I think, again, it's one that people are prepared to leave behind if they understand that our common destiny depends on our ability to pull together. We cannot afford to have people in this country who are not productive. We cannot afford to subsidize people for their entire lifetime. We need everyone to make a contribution. It's in our collective self-interest. You had one example in here even, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, in, in Alabama where they changed the county commission rules and it had always been white Democrats. And now not only do we finally have people of color being elected as county commission, but Republicans for the first time. That's right. That's right. Everyone can benefit if the rules are opened up to have genuine democracy. We need more democracy, not less. After this short break, Lonnie Guineer explains why it's so important that we rethink what democracy is. Now back to my 1994 interview with Lonnie Guineer. I've heard you questioned on other interviews about the concept of cumulative voting. Now, to me, I, maybe I'm crazy. In Illinois, you vote have always voted for years for state representative cumulatively. You have a number of people on the ballot. You have three votes. You can cast them. In that's whatever. right. Up that's until basically what you're talking about. That's right. Up until 1980, the Illinois legislature was elected using cumulative voting. Peoria, Illinois, used cumulative voting. Uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico, Chilton County, Alabama. So uh, corporations in 30 states are either required or um, allowed to use cumulative voting to elect members of the board of directors to protect minority shareholders. I, I find it ironic that the members of the media were unable to point out that the the what's the the form of the radio television correspondence association on Capitol Hill votes for its board members cumulatively. Yes, I I learned that recently myself. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's something I write. Why? I, it, it, it's easy, I suppose, to giggle at people's at short-sightedness. But I mean, this is a very serious thing when when members of the media are unable to tell the American public, give the the public an accurate view of what you're saying and put it in context. I think it is um, a serious problem. I think it reflects the failure to engage in um, journalism at its best, to pursue primary reporting to find the facts. It reflects a tendency to 
go after controversy just for controversy's sake without illuminating, to titillate rather than to educate. I think all of those things are a phenomena that I was um, exposed to, but I'm not the only one. Has there been any forum since then in which you have uh, felt you've been treated fairly in the media? Have you, have you been on a talk show? Have you been in a newspaper yes, context? No, I, uh, think, I think once my nomination was withdrawn, then I no longer posed a threat. And at that point, journalists were willing to listen. And I have had very, very useful and, um, I think, informative exchanges with journalists both in the print and broadcast media. Supposing just for a moment that you had had a hearing, you'd been confirmed, and now you worked as the assistant assistant attorney general for civil rights. I want to make sure to distinguish between an assistant and associate. There's that little fine distinction in there. What kinds of things, in broad terms, would you have liked to have accomplished by now? In other words, how much of what you were talking about in theory would perhaps now be in place? One of the... um first goals that I had, and I'm pursuing it without the job, but the goal is to try to get the American people to engage in a national conversation about race, to move out of our respective corners into that vast middle space. And indeed, I've um, suggested that President Clinton convene a summit, a White House summit on race, to show that you can bring people together of varying perspectives, sit them around a round table, and have them talk about some of these issues. I think it would be breathtakingly um, interesting. I think it would be an example for other people to then follow. We need models. We need vision. We need moral authority. And moral. we need leaders who take the moral high ground and show us that we can do better. It strikes me we also need, as a nation to discuss what exactly democracy is, what democracy isn't, what that, we what we want from it, what is fair. Right, because I think we have we've sound bitten democracy. We think democracy is what we do. We think democracy means that the majority should rule without understanding what the limitations of majority rule are, where the majority is excluding the minority. We don't understand that most other democracies around the world do not elect their representatives the way we do. There are um, seven or eight different election systems that are being used by democracies. And we could choose to do it a little bit differently. And cumulative voting, as it turns out, is right in the middle of these, uh, this range of choices. On the extreme, you have Israel, in which 1% of the voters can elect a member of the Knesset. But at the other extreme end, you have the United States, in which 51% get to elect 100% of the representatives. And cumulative voting is between, in the middle, between those two extremes. It's interesting to see in Israel a confusion in American audiences as to why do they have to build coalitions? Why do they have to form partnerships? You know, why do they have to do that? But it's a, it's a fascinating system that they've got. Uh, with uh, with all, of, all of its shortcomings, too. But, uh, it, you know, once we get past 7th or 8th grade uh, civics class, once we pass that test and, we can, and they've graduated us to, to high school, we kind of forget what it's all about. And we forget that, to me, democracy is about giving a voice to the people. Democracy is about self-government. And therefore, any system that gives voters more choice is actually more democratic, not less.
was it was what was threatening about what you were saying in an academic context to the people in power the fact that they might have to give up some of that power that the that the people duly elected them to do that could have been part of it if I were confident that they had read what I had written, but I am not confident that um, they had done any better job than the journalists, unfortunately. You, do, you, you seem like a very, you seem like you've adjusted well to, you, you seem quite well adjusted to it all. As a kid, I always had an anxiety dream before going to school on the first day that I would show up wearing a slip and not wearing my skirt or wearing pants when girls were supposed to wear dresses. And my nightmare was that I'd walk down the hall and all the kids would be laughing and pointing at me and I would have no idea what was happening. And then, of course, I walked into this nomination and became an object of public humiliation on a grand scale. And when I reported my earlier nightmares to a dinner guest at Widener University, who happened, as it turned out later, to be a professor of psychology, he said, well, Lonnie, you're now cured because you have faced your greatest nightmare and you've survived. The only thing I would like to add is that these ideas are not that complicated and that my four-year-old son could get it. When we were looking at a Sesame Street magazine article and he saw a picture of six kids trying to decide what game to play and four had their hands raised because they wanted to play tag and two had their hands down because they wanted to play hide and seek and the magazine said, count the number of children whose hands are raised and then decide what game the children will play. And he did, but then he said they will play both. First, they will play tag, and then they will play hide-and-seek. And in his mind, because the tag preference had the most votes, it would go first. But the hide-and-seek preference would also be recognized. And that's essentially what I'm talking about, taking turns. Lonnie Guineer died last year. She was 71. And you can find easy Amazon links to Lonnie Guineer's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you can also hear my 1990 interview with someone else who knows something about having their nomination derailed by their critics, my conversation with Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork. The most mysterious branch to the American public is the judiciary, and yet it is one of the most important, particularly because when it speaks in the name of the Constitution, it is final. And that's it. And you can also hear my 1997 interview with a man who did make it into the Clinton administration as Labor Secretary, Robert Reich. When I was a public official not too long ago, I had to watch my words. I mean, I got in trouble even for what I said. When I talked about corporate welfare, it was like a bomb went off. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's interview, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? Because we do indeed post new episodes three times a week, and you can get us on all major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman who started a tradition 41 years ago, and it'll continue this coming weekend in Jackson, Mississippi. My 2001 interview with the sweet potato queen herself, Jill Connor Brown. My card, it's hot pink, and on one side it has our website, and on the other side it says, lick you all over 10 cents. Ask about our other specialties. (laughs) I'll tell you, no one loses my business card. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.